refugees currently due to the war in Ukraine. The, the Zazieluk family uh, is going to be taking them into their home for three months. Um, and we as a church uh, have already committed to helping during those three months uh, get the Sobchak settled and prepared uh, to be independent. So that is, that's a lot of things, right? <laughs> we've, we've committed to, to being Jesus to this family, and that will look like a lot of things during those three months when they're with the Zazileks, like driving them to appointments, getting them set up with ESL, being friends to them, helping them with Canadian banking information. Like there's, there, there's a lot, right? There's a lot to get settled in a whole new place. So do come talk to me. I'm going to be in the foyer. I'm going to have information. There's over 25 uh, spots. If you want to commit to helping with something, I would also be more than happy to take like your email or something to just give you updates to pray for the Sobchak family. Right now, they're still waiting for their paperwork. They could be here in three weeks or the end of the summer. Like we don't really know. So we kind of want to be ready as soon as possible. So do come talk to me and do, yeah, the, 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 the Ukraine crisis in general, right? Keep it in your prayers and keep the subjects in your prayers. Thanks. Oh, oh my, oh no, I, Goldbar Park, Goldbar Park, where is Site 1? Anybody know where Site 1 is? Goldbar, do you know where Site 1 is? I think, I think the picnic's at 4 o'clock. Oh, I wish I would have listened to the announcements in church this morning. Oh. Pastor Mark Barrett's missional speech presentation. Let's take a peek. I think the video is starting now. <sighs> wow, I didn't know we had a movie star on staff. We sure do. That's amazing. Hey, Lindsay, I forgot my potato salad in the car. Do you mind dismissing the kids and praying for the pastor? Absolutely. All right, we'll talk to you later. All right, well, good morning and welcome to Northgate Baptist Church. Um, I'm Lindsay. I'm the summer intern here this year. Um, and yeah, we just wanted to welcome you to church this morning. Um, if you are a newcomer, please fill out one of the visitor cards in the pew in front of you. Um, or there's a QR code on the back of the bulletin. You can scan that and then fill in the information on our website if you'd prefer that method. Um, so, yes, that is all the announcements for today. Hopefully you caught all the information. Um, so now we'll just be praying over the service. 
Dear God, thank you so much for today. Uh, thank you for this beautiful sunshine that we'll be able to enjoy for our church picnic later today. Um, yeah, as Pastor Mark comes up, I pray that you would be with him, help him to speak clearly, and let us hear what you want us to hear, God. May it be your words heard here today, um, and may we go out in peace and in your love. In your name, amen. And now the kids can be dismissed. Uh, good morning, church. I want to wish you a very warm welcome this morning, whether you are joining us here in person or joining us at home online. Uh, I'm excited to tell you that we are coming back to our series in the book of Acts this morning. So if you'd like to get your Bibles, uh, you can join me in turning to the book of Acts chapter 8 uh, that we are uh, going to be looking at. We began looking at chapter 8 two weeks ago. Uh, and as we come to this passage, I can't help but mention again just how pivotal uh, I think chapter 8 is in, in the book of Acts as a whole. Because uh, chapter 8, it begins with great persecution breaking out against the church in Jerusalem, but it ends with a real just sort of great commitment to evangelism and the spreading of the gospel. And I think it's important, chapter 8, again, because in the Jewish mind, Jerusalem was always the place everybody wanted to be. Uh, Jerusalem was the home of the temple. Uh, if you wanted to celebrate the feast right, you had to be in Jerusalem to really do it well. It was the center of sort of their Jewish national pride. And I think the Christians at that time, most of whom were Jewish, uh, I think they were beginning to copy that, that same pattern uh, where the, there was this emphasis being, about being centered in Jerusalem. Um, because even though the church was growing in number at that time, people were being added daily to their number, uh, the church was, again, still mostly, it was just in one place. But then this persecution comes, and the church is scattered. And I actually sort of have a, a picture in my mind of this persecution. Um, think of the church in Jerusalem as if it was like a solid piece of red-hot iron that you just sort of pull out of a furnace. And it's just red-hot, it's burning for Christ. But then this massive hammer of persecution just begins sort of pounding this red-hot church on the anvil of suffering. And it brings blow after blow. And the men, you know, like Saul, who were, who were persecuting the church, thought that those blows were going to destroy the church and, and snuff out its light. But what actually happens in chapter 8 is that with each blow of persecution that falls upon the church in Jerusalem, there are sparks that fly off into the darkness. And as each spark flies off, landing in different places, it brings light and heat of its passion to new places. And soon those sparks ignite new fire. So instead of this sort of one great light burning brightly in Jerusalem, now there are hundreds, if not thousands, of little fires burning all over that region, in towns, in villages, in homes, in communities. It's a thousand sort of points of light and hope shining in what was once a very dark place. And one of those sparks that flew uh, is a guy named Philip. Uh, and Philip, as he flees Jerusalem, he, he lands in a region of Samaria. And this passage is kind of his story. 
And that's what our, so if you want to follow along, the Acts chapter 8, verses 9 to 25, uh, really speaks about Philip's work. In the beginning of verse 9, I'll read it to you. It says, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and was amazed, uh, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was someone great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for the Lord had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was giving through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you said uh, have said may come upon me. And now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray that you would be with us again in a, in a very special and a very powerful way uh, as we proclaim the word this morning. Uh, pray that it would speak to us. Pray that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are ready to accept. And Lord, um, yeah, it's kind of a tough passage, but I pray that you would give me wisdom in how I, how I present it. And that Lord, yeah, may it transform us, may it change us, may it draw us closer to you in all that we do. Give me the strength. Uh, and the unction to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning as we begin our time together, I'm, I want to introduce you to a man named Philip. Um, but I might probably more accurate to say I want to reintroduce you uh, to Philip because we've already met Philip uh, back when we studied Acts in chapter 6. And if you'll remember, we get this introduction from Acts chapter 6 where we're told beginning in Acts 6 verse 2, it says, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And Philip was one of those seven men who was chosen for this duty, this duty to, to distribute food to some of the widows in the church who are being overlooked. And even from that short introduction, we could glean probably a couple of things about uh, the kind of person that Philip was. Uh, Philip was probably a very helpful guy. 
Uh, he liked to serve. You know, he's one of those guys where if you have a job that needed to do, to do you know, Philip was probably one of the first guys who would step up and say, I'll, I'll help you out. I'll do it. He was also probably a reliable guy. Uh, I mean, they, they, they trusted him and these others with, with a very big responsibility. But I think most important of all, Philip was also a man who was deeply committed to his faith in Jesus Christ. As the Bible says, he was full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. And you know, as people go, I mean, that's a pretty great introduction, but the Bible almost goes out of its way to present Philip as just kind of an ordinary guy. Um, he's not one of the apostles. He wasn't a great theologian. He wasn't a pastor or a preacher. He didn't have a, you know, graduate from any seminary or anything. He was, he was just a guy who the church determined that he was eminently qualified to serve food. You know, he was basically meals on wheel driver, uh, kind of thing. You know, skip the dishes to, to the to the or to the widows, kind of thing. But then, after the death of Stephen, uh, which was what caused persecution to break out, when persecution broke out against the church, Philip, like so many of the other believers, he fell in some hard times. So he flees Jerusalem. Uh, he leaves behind his home. He leaves behind his friends. He possibly even his family where he's now sort of all alone as a stranger in a very strange land. As we read in Acts 8, verse 4, it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And you know, as lands go, Samaria would have been a very strange place indeed. Uh, Samaria, it was sort of north of Jerusalem and would have kind of been in between Jerusalem and Galilee, if you kind of know your maps. And Samaria... It kind of, it had this sort of weird, when it came to religion, this weird blend of sort of pseudo-Jewish belief that was sort of mixed with a lot of pagan culture things as well. Uh, in the Old Testament, actually, it was part of the northern kingdom of Israel uh, when the nation split in two after the reign of King Solomon. So the people there were once Jews, but after sort of a lot of evil kings who reigned over them and a lot of idolatry and a lot of bad choices, that led to several years of sort of intermarriage with other people groups. The Samaritans at this point were considered neither Jewish nor Gentiles. They were sort of something in between, um, which made them sort of hated by everybody, which was unfortunate. But, you know, to the majority of the Jewish people at that time, they looked at Samaritans as sort of, they were half-breeds. They were unclean. They were cursed because of their unfaithfulness to God. For a Jew, to associate with someone who was a Samaritan was unthinkable. And to compare someone to a Samaritan was to be looking for a fight. And to be a Samaritan was to be hated by everybody. So why would Philip choose to end up in Samaria? Well, one reason is likely that it was the perfect place to hide. Um, you know, the Jews who are persecuting the church would likely rather be, caught, be dead than ever be caught setting foot in, on Samaritan soil. It was not a place that a good Jewish person would ever go, no matter the reason. But I think a far better reason uh, that Philip had for traveling to Samaria was because Samaria was filled with people who needed to hear about Jesus. So whether it was intentional or just by circumstance, Philip becomes a missionary. And remember, as I said, the Bible goes out of its way to present him as just a sort of ordinary guy. There's nothing special about him that we know. He's not one of the apostles, had no formal training. 
We're not told he had any sort of special gifting or bent for evangelism. And certainly there were people in that church, early church, who were more qualified, who could have done a better job of it than he did. So why did Philip become what many people consider to be the very first Christian missionary? Well, the simple answer is because he was there. Philip found himself in a place where people didn't know Jesus. And as a believer, he understood it was his responsibility as a follower of Christ to tell them about Jesus. It may not have been what Philip would have chosen for himself. It it may not be what he pictured himself doing as part of his service to the church. It may not have even been something he was really comfortable with. But Philip was faithful to obey. And that's something I want all of us to hear this morning. That being a missionary, that, that sharing Jesus with other people, it's not a matter of choice. Being a missionary is a matter of obedience. And that means we need to understand, biblically, we are all missionaries. We are all called to be witnesses. We're all called to share the good news. We're all called uh, to take that message to the lost. We're all called to be proclaiming Christ. And it has nothing to do with your abilities. It has nothing to do with your giftedness. It has everything to just doing what Jesus tells us to do as his followers. And we do that even if we don't feel qualified to do it. You know, I was reading uh, not too long ago about the disappearing gift of evangelism in North American churches. The latest survey from the Barna Group had less than 1% of believers claiming for themselves that they feel they have the gift of evangelism. That's actually down from 10% a few years earlier. And I think that many people assume that if they don't feel like they have the gift of evangelism, they must not be responsible for actually doing evangelism. But you know, what must that look like from God's perspective? Imagine this. Imagine, imagine you're walking next to sort of a small swimming pool. And suddenly you hear screaming and frantic splashing. And, and you look over into the pool and you notice there's a four-year-old who's just struggling to keep his head above water. And you panic a little bit. You begin to sweat. There's, there's no lifeguard on duty. If you don't do something, this child is going to drown. You run to the edge of the pool and you look down at the struggling child and you go, what am I going to do? And you make your choice. And you say to yourself, well, I don't feel I have the gift of saving children from drowning in a swimming pool, so I think I'm just going to let this one pass. It's absurd. And yet there are far too many people making that exact same choice in their lives when it comes to sharing faith in Christ with others. Now, I'm not asking you to go run out on the street corners and start you know, getting in people's faces and preaching at passers-by. But what I do want you to do is encourage you to be looking for opportunities. Get involved in some activities that take you, you know, outside of the walls of this church. Be building relationships and just spend some time with people and opportunities to share Jesus Christ will come. And we need to take them because that's what faithfulness is about. So Philip becomes a missionary. And actually, two weeks from now, when we continue, uh, we're going to look at some of his strategies for doing it. It's amazing. But uh, he, he begins sharing the gospel with the people of Samaria. And the people of Samaria respond. Acts 8, verse 6 begins. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out in a loud voice, came out of many who had them. 
And many were, who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And you know, one of those people in Samaria who were taking all of this in was a man named Simon. And this is his introduction, beginning of verse 9. It says, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city, and he had mazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. They paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. This Simon that we meet is, here is, is a magician. Uh, sometimes he's actually called Simon Magus, uh, which is because that's what Magus means. It means magician. And this Simon, he was famous in Samaria. He was sort of a real local celebrity, spiritual superstar. Because we're told he amazed people with his tricks. And not just amazed them. The wording there could actually mean that these people were sort of beside themselves in awe of the power that he had. But understand here that when the Bible says Simon practiced magic, it was not like the magicians we know today who use distraction and sleight of hand and you know smoke and mirrors to, to do their work and tricks, you know, pulling rabbits out of hats and sawing ladies in two. No, Simon was a magician in the worst sense of the word. He was a sorcerer. Simon was likely a man who had somehow established a relationship with demonic powers. And Simon then used those demonic powers to accomplish what must have looked like miracles. And you know, to the spiritually lost and hungry people of Samaria, Simon offered himself and the power that he had to fill that void. Simon offered himself as the person that they could put their faith in. And Luke, who's, who's writing the book of Acts, actually tells us, he says in verse 10, this, they said, this man is the power of God that is called great. And that means that Simon may actually have been making a claim to be a God himself. That was the kind of power that he seemed to have. And yet, even though for a moment Simon and his magic may have, you know, brought hope or relief to people, chances are in the end he left them off much worse than they began. In fact, someone very wisely points out that many of the people who were released from the unclean spirits through the preaching of Philip were probably originally bound through the magic of Simon. But suddenly, Simon, Simon the Great, Simon the Sorcerer, suddenly he's faced with some competition. And his monopoly on the hearts and the minds of the people with his magic, it was over. Because a new spiritual master was in town when Philip came proclaiming Christ. And all of Simon's magic is now being overshadowed by the true power of God. And at first, it seems as if Simon also sees the light. Verse 12 says, But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And you know, if we were to stop reading there, this would be a really great story. Um, Simon believes and he's baptized and he's even found sort of following Philip around town like a lost puppy, just amazed at all that the power of God could truly do. He put his own power, you know, shadowed it. 
He was amazed. And this seems like such good news. And in fact, when word gets back to the church in Jerusalem, they're so excited they decide to send along Peter and John to help support and encourage this ministry that Philip has begun. And this is where things get interesting. Verse 14 continues. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For they had not yet fallen on, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands might receive the Holy Spirit. And it's here that the real truth about Simon comes out. We're told Simon, when he sees the Holy Spirit come upon the people, but notably there's no indication that Simon himself receives the Spirit. He's overlooked. And I think it serves as sort of a reminder to us that in any crowd there can be two responses to the preaching of the Word. The faithful and the phony. And Simon's salvation just, it was not genuine. I mean, sure, he believed. We're we're even told that specifically. Simon believed, but as the book of James reminds us, James 2, verse 19, you believe that there is one God good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Even demons believe the right things. But a faith that saves is more than just believing in a right set of facts. Faith that saves means yielding your life. It means surrender. It means repentance, which is something that is never mentioned as happening in Simon's life. Someone put it like this. Simon was a dry sorcerer before his baptism and a wet sorcerer after his baptism. There's no heart change. And as much as Simon may have looked like a believer and acted like a believer and talked like a believer and followed Philip around like the other believers, it just wasn't true. So I guess we could ask here, well, what was in it for him? Like, why did, why did Simon stick around? What did Simon want from Christianity if it wasn't genuine salvation? Well, it seems that Simon loved the show. He loved the power and being amazed. I mean, for, for Simon, I guess he began to think of church was a place that he was entertained not a place where he was to be transformed. You know, Simon loved seeing the miracles and the wonders and the amazement of the people as all of it was happening around him. He loved the spectacle and the excitement of that. And I'm sure it was contagious. But the point is that Simon saw the signs, but he never truly saw the Savior behind them. And even more than that, Simon saw the potential in all of this for himself. As he wanted the power of the Holy Spirit to be his. He's willing to pay for it. But, you know, instead of inviting the Holy Spirit into his life to control his life, Simon wanted to control the Holy Spirit to further his own agenda. Instead of repenting, Simon figured it would be much faster just to bargain. Instead of being broken by his sin... Simon figures, I can cut a deal. But Simon is about to learn a lesson. 
Because, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a business transaction. Church is not a production whose goal should be to amaze or thrill an audience. And when we are preaching the gospel, it's so important that we understand we are not selling people a product. But as I went through this passage this week, I think one of the things I was convicted of is that sometimes as a church, we are actually guilty of doing just that. You know, you want to get more people into the church? Well, get a better worship team. Get, buy a smoke machine. Have a celebrity preacher come in. You know, get some laser lights. Crank up the spectacle, and that will put bodies in the seats. And when it comes to preaching the gospel, make sure it's something that sounds easy and painless and tidy. That if you believe in Jesus, he's, he's going to make you happy, and he's going to save your marriage, and he's going to keep your kids safe, and he's going to help you lose 20 pounds and straighten your teeth all at the same time. Sometimes as a church, we are guilty of presenting Jesus to people as the perfect accessory to an already busy and successful life. And that's what Simon wanted too. He wanted his old life with the new Holy Spirit upgrade package. And yet the Bible tells us faith in Christ, it will destroy you. Following Christ is something that will wipe you out completely because truly believing in Jesus will lead you and can only lead you to the cross and to your own death. Luke 9, beginning of verse 23, Jesus said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? You see, the gospel is not a coat of polish we apply to our lives to make them look nice. The gospel is the utter transformation of who we are from the inside out by grace, through faith, through the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. That's the lesson Simon was about to learn the hard way. Beginning of verse 20. But Peter says to him, may your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven of you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now, Peter's response there, it may make some people uncomfortable. Even today, we'd probably have to put a trigger warning on that for the sensitive. Uh, In fact, J.B. Phillips' translation says, Peter replied, go to hell with your money. But Peter was never one for sort of being politically correct. But why was Peter so hard on Simon? Well, I think that Peter had such a harsh response here because when he looked, you know, Peter looked at Simon Magus. He saw the potential for the greatest danger the church had faced up until that time. Because he saw a man that was poised and primed to become a false teacher. He was a man who loved and abused power. A man who who was charismatic and would happily lead people astray for his own gain. Simon was a man who who used pseudo-religious sounding words to offer false hope to people for the right price. 
Peter saw in Simon a man who wanted to use Christianity as a means to get himself rich. And Simon Magus, he actually has the dubious distinction of having a sin named after him. Boy, what do you got to do to have that happen? Uh, the sin of simony. Uh, it, it came, simony came to be known as the sin of trying to buy a religious office with money or more generally getting rich by selling spirituality. And with all that in mind, I think of the words of John Calvin who once said, a pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and one for driving away the wolves. And in this passage, we're hearing Peter's wolf-driving voice. And yet, I want you to hear this too, because even in Peter's harsh tone and his harsh words, his words here are still an offer of grace as he gives Simon another chance to truly repent. Verse 22, he says, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. This is one more chance for Simon to change his heart. And Simon's response is to ask Peter to pray for him. Verse 24, Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And verse 25, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And that's the last we hear of Simon the sorcerer. Did he repent? You know, did repentance finally break through? And, or did his pride sort of keep him on the fast track to destruction? Of course, there's, you know, if you look, there's rumors and legends about Simon, about what happened to him. Most of them are not good. But the Bible actually never reveals to us what actually happens here. We don't know Simon's ultimate fate. But maybe it's better that way because... You know, it gives me the opportunity to ask you this morning, where does this sermon find you? What does your relationship with Jesus look like? How are you responding to the Holy Spirit in your life today? Do you feel like you're stuck at the crossroads? You know, are you compromising when it comes to your walk with God? Are you ready to give all and serve Him? Because in many ways, Simon we meet these two guys, and Simon serves as a contrast to Philip, and Philip serves as a contrast to Simon. You know, Philip was humble. Simon was a man who was full of pride. Philip was sacrificial. Simon served only himself. Philip was, was truthful. Simon practiced deception. Philip embraced his own weakness. Simon reveled in his own strength. Philip was willing to give everything to follow Christ. Simon was only ready to follow if the price was right. Philip glorified God. Simon glorified only himself. And Philip is a, an example of a life well-lived, of genuine faith. But Simon serves as a very real warning. Simon was a man who heard the truth and believed in the truth, but he refused to surrender to that truth. And he only really wanted to play the part. A Simon or a Philip. I think we all make that choice in our lives. And I don't know which one are you, but to help us sort of see this with a bit more certainty, let me give you two words of advice that I hope will bring some clarity. The first thing I would tell you is you have to know that when you come to Christ for salvation, you have to come in humility and repentance. One pastor rightly points out in this passage that before a person can be truly saved, they must understand that they are truly lost. 
That there's nothing that we can do or bring or say or bargain with or negotiate that can purchase our salvation or give us credit in the sight of God. We come to the cross with empty hands. You know, it's no coincidence that for, what, 50 years, Billy Graham closed all of his services all over the world with the musical invitation says, just as I am without one plea. Come to Christ in humility and in repentance. And then the second thing I would say to you here is you have to know that Christ alone can save you. You know, Simon was hoping that either his money or his own power would be enough to sort of tip the scales. But only Jesus and his work on the cross is sufficient to save us from sin. That's the only way to be saved. It's the only way to forgiveness of sins. It's the only way to gain eternal life. And that's through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's the simple truth of it. And you know what? Beware of any church that does not lead you to Jesus and the cross on a regular basis. Because only Jesus Christ could save. And that's why repent and believe was the call of the early church to a lost world. And that's why it's still our call today. To repent and believe in Jesus, the Son of God. And if you want to make that salvation a reality in your life today, you can. You confess your sinfulness. You admit your need, your deep need, your ultimate need of a Savior. You surrender all of your pride. You repent of your life of sin and your old ways. And you accept Jesus as your Lord and begin to live for him completely with all that you are, holding nothing back. Because following God means giving him your life without reservation. It's for God's use, for God's glory, for God's will, for God's pleasure, for God alone. It means living for Christ 100% of the time. It means bringing Christ into your family and your relationships and your private time. It means taking Christ along with you when you go to work and when you play and when you're at rest. You know, it means no more drawing the line between what is sacred and what is secular in your life. No more distinguishing between time set aside for God and time set aside for everything else. There's no more living a life where you say one thing but you do another. There's no more dividing the heart between two masters. That's what life in the kingdom is about. That's what we're truly being called to. It's not a negotiation, it's a surrender. And Christ alone is king, and Christ alone is all. Let's pray. Father God, again, this has been such a tough passage, but I guess looking at it this week, I guess the great irony for me is that if Simon had only surrendered, all that he desired would have been his through the free gift of grace through Jesus Christ. But he refused to surrender and instead wanted to name his price. And it cost him everything. And I guess the conviction for me, Lord, is that how often do we do the same thing? How often in our own relationship with you do we compromise? thinking that if we only had just hold a small bit back, you won't really notice. We want enough, you know, we want enough Jesus in our life to, to feel like a warm hug, but we don't want enough Jesus that we really want him to upset our priorities. We come often saying, Lord, we give you our all, but what we often mean is that, Lord, we'll give you all that we're willing to give.
And Lord, in our relationship with you, may, may it not be a negotiation. May it not be something that is give and take. May it not be sort of us looking for the best bargain. Get the most Jesus out of the least amount of work. May it not be us trying to live our old lives and just adding Jesus as a little bonus extra. Instead, may our relationship with you be a complete surrender. A surrender of our time, a surrender of our money, a surrender of our priorities, a surrender of our service. Because only when we come to you holding nothing back can we find that you alone are everything we've been looking for. And I pray that, Lord, you would do that work. Do that work in our lives. Do that work in our church. Because, Lord, it's, it's, it's not about us giving more. It's about us receiving more. And knowing that, Lord, the least of what we receive from you through your grace is far greater than anything we want to hold on to in our lives. And may we be committed to that. May we be committed to sharing Jesus with the world around us. May we be committed to the truth, protecting ourselves from you know, the teaching of false teachers all around us. And may we be committed to you. Not as a negotiation, not as a compromise, not as a bargaining tool, completely surrendered 100% to you in everything we do. And I pray that, Lord, you would unite our hearts, unite our church around that purpose and that passion. May we be sold out to Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.